Well, this morning and every morning, I am very clear that we have much to give thanks for. We have a church family here that we can worship with and enjoy the many blessings that God has given us, this building that we're in, a sound system that everyone can hear me, a bunch of people who have volunteered their incredible gifts and time to make sure that we can worship together and that things work as they should. And this morning, as many of us often do, we roll over and we see the news of, of the night and the days previous, and we become very aware that where we live, we are incredibly blessed. We have not suffered the, the ravages of war in this country in hundreds of years. And yet, there are so many, and so many of our Christian brothers and sisters who around the world are suffering through that right now. We have not received the level of religious persecution that so many of our brothers and sisters around the world have. We have freedom to share the gospel, to gather together, not with any kind of pretense, but with the outright purpose, we are gathered here to worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we can say that without fear of reprisal from government or from other groups in, in our area. So I hope that as we gather here together this morning that we, we do give thanks, that we are thankful, and that we not only just acknowledge it in our hearts, but that we bring our thanks before our Lord and our Savior. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia, Thanksgiving in Canada was first celebrated in the province of Canada in 1859. It was organized, and I found this quite interesting, at the request and the urging of the leaders of the Protestant clergy who appropriated the holiday of American Thanksgiving, which was first observed in 1777. And it was established as a national day of public thanksgiving and prayer in 1789. In Canada, the holiday was intended for the public and solemn recognition of God's mercies. I think all of us are well aware that thanksgiving has, in Canada and around the world, drifted from this original purpose. No longer are we publicly and solemnly recognizing God's mercies. We are fighting each other in Walmart for the last turkey. But, and it, it is humorous in a way, but it's also very sad that we in our culture have in many great ways lost our way of coming to God in thanksgiving, not just on Thanksgiving Sunday, but throughout the year for His incredible mercies. And hopefully, we can begin to reclaim this purpose. And I will play this harp until I die, but God has incredible ways of providentially ordering our sermons and our worship times, because we just happened to, on this Sunday, by no 
and fancy footwork of our own, the opportunity to dis discuss the creation of our very world here on Thanksgiving Sunday. So as we come to a time where we become very aware of many of the things for which we have to give thanks, would you join with me in prayer? O oh Lord, our God, you have given us much to be thankful for, not the least of which being our very existence. The fact that we awoke this morning, the fact that the molecules and the atoms in our bodies still exist, these things we owe entirely to you. For it is in you that we live and move and have our being. It is in you that all things hold together, that our universe continues to exist, O Lord. So Lord, we thank you. And as we look at this narrative of your creation, we ask that you would soften our hearts, that the calluses that we have built up, the hardness that we have had towards you that we have not given you thanks as we ought to have, that these would fall away and that we would be granted the ability to look upon our world with fresh eyes, to look upon this creation that you have made with fresh eyes and give you all thanks and all honor and all glory and all praise this morning. And that as we go from here, some of us to huge Thanksgiving meals and spreads with family and friends and joy and laughter and conversation. That this would not be lost. That as we gather around our tables, whether it is just us or with great families, that we would find ourselves glorifying the God of the universe for all of his many mercies towards us as creation. We thank you for these things and pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. So remember last week, for those of you that were here, the point of that first verse of Genesis is that we would recognize and acknowledge the majesty of our God. In the beginning, God. And that needs to be our posture and our mindset going into the creation of the rest of our world. In the beginning, God created. So keep your eyes and your hearts firmly fixed upon the God that should inspire such awe in our hearts. And read with me, and it's a bit of a long passage, but we're going to look at the first 25 verses of the book of Genesis, and we'll read again verse 1. But this 25 verses is the creation of our universe as we know it, and we will pull up just shy of the creation of the first man in verse 26. Genesis chapter 1, again, that's page 1 in your Bibles, and running through to verse 25. 
in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God, God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. We live in a creation that God saw and it was good. As we read this creation story. My first thought is that, one, it is very easy for us to skim. Yeah, you get plants and animals and fish, and it's easy for us to skim. But then as we take the time to actually read it, another temptation for us is that we can read it and we can see this story of God creating our home. God has done this. He has created and his creation is good. 
But in all of creation up to this point, the only direct reference to any specific entity is not to us, but to God. This is not the story of God creating our home. At least not yet. Right now, with that mindset of in the beginning, God. This is the story of God creating. This is his creations and no one else's. The earth and all the earth and all that is in it belongs wholly and entirely to him. As I was thinking about this, I had this image that's fairly familiar to God's creative work, that of kind of the potter and the clay. And I started thinking about the various ways that someone could make some sort of legitimate or even pseudo-legitimate claim on a potter's workmanship. So the potter makes this pot. Is, is the pot not his? Well, what about the one who quarried the materials, the clay from the ground? Doesn't he have some kind of interest and stake in this pot? What about the one who trained the potter, who taught him how to do what he does. Okay, well, he has a piece as well. What about the one who raised the potter, his parents, his family? They, they have a stake in his work because they have raised up the potter here. What about the ones who develop the tools or the techniques for molding the clay? They, too, get to have some say, be like, well, I, I taught you how to do that. The potter may technically own the pot. He's likely paid for his materials or his tools or his training. Maybe we can assume that he's no longer living at home with his family, but each of these parties do, at least in some sense, carry an interest in this pot. The potter can say, I've made this, this is mine, but everyone else can be like, well, his parents, we've all said it as parents, be like, well, I made you, so the potter owns this pot, but there are other parties that are involved. Well, I, I took the clay out of the ground, so I get to take some pride in this and have some ownership here too. The potter owns it, but he is dependent upon these that have gone before him and have prepared the materials. But as we look at creation, this creation story, there is no such chain of dependence upon our God's work of creation. There is no, well, I taught you how, or our God has created out of nothing. And as the prophet Isaiah rhetorically asked in Isaiah 40, who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? The obvious implied answer is nobody. Nobody has taught God anything. And we need to realize as we look at this creation story, creation is God's and God's alone. It was no one else's idea. No one else contributed to it. No one else has supplied any resources to it. And most certainly, no one has contributed to or raised or trained God himself in the making. Creation 
everything that exists in our universe is his and his alone and his to do with as he sees fit. And if we're thinking, that has bearing on everything. Everything in our universe is God's. And I say this to drive home. This is not, this is not our story. Nor is this our world. Our God, his story, his world, and by his grace, by his power, by his love, by his sovereign will, we get to have a part in the story. We get to have a part in his story. He has chosen to create this universe in which we live. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 2, we kind of get, and I hadn't realized this before this, but we kind of get the framework for the whole rest of the creation account in verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Before we get too far into this, I just want to kind of step into disclaimer mode and give you a little bit of my side of things and re maybe reveal my bias. I have been convinced by my study of Scripture of a young earth view and a literal seven-day creation. I believe that when we read in Scripture, six days, and on the seventh day he rested, that is six literal days. And I believe that the earth is only in to the tune of thousands of years old. And all of that is kind of wrapped up in the fact that I tend towards biblical literalism, which is just a way of saying that when I read God's word, unless something is obviously meant to be allegorical or obviously meant to be poetic or figurative, I believe that this book should be taken literally. Now, when I first wrote this message, it was about half again as long as it is right now. And I realized that I should probably not go for an hour in some. So, paring it back a little bit, all this to say, I'm not going to load this up with arguments for or against certain viewpoints as far as creation goes. We have plenty of time for that. There are a variety of theories that abound about how creation works, and I don't want to vilify or dismiss anyone who holds views that differ from my own. And I do think that it's good to have those discussions. But those discussions are not a great thing for me to spout, this is what I think from up here, and then you have to chase me down in the foyer afterwards and go, well, I disagree. And you are welcome to disagree with me, and I am more than happy to have conversation with you about it. I am not the arbiter of truth. I 
am not infallible in my interpretations of Scripture. But I am convinced of this by God's Word, and I would welcome you to have those discussions with me if you disagree. But if you disagree, I would encourage you to come with God's Word to tell me why you disagree. So, just wanted each of you to understand kind of the view that I'm coming from as I talk about creation. And I'm going to now dis step out of disclaimer mode and kind of back to the text. As I said, Genesis 2, or Genesis 1, verse 2, we kind of get this framework for the rest of the creation story. And when we read verse 2, it's easy to read it with this kind of foreboding first assessment of the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. As the curtains open on creation, God creates the heavens and the earth, and the universe begins, and time begins to move, and this primordial earth is without form and void and dark, and some take this to mean that it is evil or wicked. There's all sorts of theories. Maybe Satan and his fall were the reason why it was dark, or it was without form, or it was void, and maybe that fits somewhere in here, and our passage has no interest in dealing with that. We can deal with that another time. But I want you to remember that the creation of light itself is just that. It is a creation. Light and darkness are morally neutral. When I turn off the lights, it's not more wicked than when I turn them on. Granted, Satan and wickedness have become associated with darkness while light is associated with Christ and righteousness. But I believe that this passage in particular is independent of that. I think of David's picture in Psalm 18 where he says, starting in 11, he made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. Or where God himself in Isaiah 45, I form light and create darkness. And as I read verse 2, I don't necessarily hear evil and chaos. And I think that's important here because throughout Christian history, the Christian creation narrative, Genesis chapter 1, has been criticized as, well, this is just a reworking of other creation stories. One of the ones that fairly regularly comes up is the Babylonian creation narrative. The Babylonian god Marduk defeats the chaotic, watery dragon Tiamat. Only now the watery, chaotic creation is unnamed, and instead of Marduk, we have Elohim or Yahweh. but I want us to be very clear on something this morning. The act of creation, God creating our world, is not a battle of good versus evil, God versus Satan or any other foe. Creation, we have God. In the beginning, God. And God is totally in control. He is totally uncontested. And He chooses to create. 
He chooses by his sovereign and mercy and grace to bring this universe into existence. He doesn't form this from existing matter. He is not dueling with an existing opponent and creation is not his, look at what I can do in the face of this opponent that is opposing me. He was and then he created. This formless and void earth, darkness over the deep, the spirit of the God hovering over the waters. For me, it is not foreboding and turmoil, but anticipation. When it talks about the spirit hovering over the waters, the images of an eagle's wings spread over its nest, it is hovering, it is waiting. I know some of us have enjoyed and taken in large concerts in our time. And if you've ever been at a concert, everyone comes in and gets seated, and almost all the time, all of a sudden, all of the lights shut off. And it just goes pitch black in the venue. And the second that happened, there's this hush that just kind of falls over everyone. They all know something's about to happen. And then usually that first note or chord rings out and then the lights come on and this concert starts. It's formless and void. There's a hush, there's a waiting, there's something is about to happen. Use another image. This is a first look at an empty canvas. It's not a quelling of wickedness or rebellion. And we get this framework of formless and void and dark. And how that works, God takes what was dark and brings light on day one, verses three to five takes what was formless and gives it form on days 2 and 3, verses 6 through 10. And he takes what was void and empty and he fills it starting on day 3 and running through to day 6 in verses 11 to 25. Formless darkness gives way to divine order of light and darkness the first days and nights. The initial watery nothing becomes an ordered atmosphere, sky and sea below. That global sea, the lower waters are gathered up and dry land appears. And in those days, no longer do we have formless darkness. We have light and form and order, all structured according to God's design. And none of this is by accident. Michelangelo, the great sculptor, once said, the sculpture is already complete within the marble block before I start my work. It is already there. I just have to chisel away the superfluous material. God, as he creates, is not working as he goes. God chose to create and said, I am going to create this thing, a world, and he makes it, and it is so. But he does not stop at creating a world. No more are things formless and dark. They are ordered and with form, and now he fills the void. 
vegetation on the earth, stars in the sky, and the rest of the heavenly bodies such as our moon and our sun, living creatures in the water and in the air, and finally living creatures on the face of the earth. It's interesting to me that God created what scientists assume to be hundreds of billions of worlds in just our galaxy, much less the rest of the universe. And yet here on planet Earth, we have the story of God continuing beyond that and creating not only an ordered world, but creating life. As I think about this switch in a few short days' time, I wonder at how full this earth must have seemed in comparison to the dark and formless void of only six days earlier. And remembering that this is God's story. This is His creation. This creation is about Him. I think it would be good before we move beyond chapter 1 to look at the five acts that God did in our passage today that we may rightly glorify Him for them. God said, God saw, God separated, He called, and He made. As I was looking at these, they fall into kind of three categories. He created. He said He created. He mastered, He separated, and He called. And He assessed, He saw. The first and most obvious of these, given our focus on this narrative, is upon God's creative acts. God created by His very Word all things. From Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers up the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. As we read earlier from Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. We understand today that this Word, by and through whom all things were created, is none other than the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, God the Son. When we consider the magnificence, the intricacy, the scale of our universe, I hope that we cannot help but be in awe of the One whose power is so great that simply by His Word He could call into existence everything. Nothing existed for eternity. And then everything existed because God spoke. Our God spoke and it was so. And that pairing is intentional. God said it was so. There is no questioning. The image here is a king sitting on his throne. He says... People do it. God says, jump everything, says how high. It's God says, and it was so. There's no question, there's no ifs, there's no ands, there's no buts. God says, and it is. I remember the story of Jesus calming the storm, and Jesus says, be still. And that storm recognizes the very voice of the one 
by whom it even exists. It recognized that voice. God created and he called and he separated. That calling and that separating, one thing I found interesting here is that the naming and the separating stops with the separating of day and night, light from darkness. None of what God created on earth, the vegetation or the birds or the sea life or the animals, God doesn't name or separate any of these ones. The act of separating one thing from another or of naming or calling something is an act of mastery. He is taking mastery over. He is acknowledging his own authority over these things. I called the light day and the darkness night. Why? Because I created them. I get to call them what I want to call them. Because I have authority over it. I get to name my children. Why? Because I created my children. I, in a person's will, they get to decide and they get to separate their possessions how they see fit if they want to leave all of their possessions to some person in Timbuktu, they can do that. Why? Because it's theirs to do with as they see fit. But God leaves all of the plants and the animals unnamed and uncategorized in anticipation of what comes next, of his final creation that would exercise this mastery themselves, authority given by God to his agents on earth. But I'm not going to preach that sermon right now. Next week we will get into God's creation of mankind. But he creates, he displays his mastery over by separating and naming things, and then he assesses his creation, and God saw. At each step, God, as any creator would, looks upon his creation and determines it to be good. And when I was thinking about what it means for something to be good, there are generally two criteria by which something is called good. That being the one who created them and their suitability for the purpose for which they've been created. We all know the pain of paying for a brand name. For certain things, we are willing to pay the price just because we know who made it and we trust that brand. We assume quality because of the Creator. Just look at, if any of you have ever been to an art gallery or an art sale, you'll know that some of what you go in there and see, you go, I don't, I don't get it. It's a bunch of squares and triangles and colors. My two-year-old can make squares and triangles and colors. But I'm not going to sell my two-year-old's painting for $50,000. Why is this one worth $50,000? And then you see a little name under it made by, usually it's someone who's already acknowledged for their skill as an artist. People ascribe value because of the one who created it. On the other end of the spectrum, there are some things that have value and that we value because of how well they work, how perfectly suited they are to their task. Whether it's tools of industry or things of enjoyment, 
Some things just work, and as such, we are willing to pay for them because they work and they accomplish the function for which they were designed. And both of these play into the goodness of our creation, but one infinitely more so than the other. The creation of our God is good primarily because of who created them. In a hypothetical world, God could create something that is the most ridiculous thing. Something that we would look at and go, why on earth would anyone create that? But because God created it, it would no longer be ridiculous. It would have infinite value because of the one who created it. Our creation has value. Our creation is good because the one who created it is good and he creates what is good. But secondarily, there's also the fact that creation is good because it is perfectly suited for the task that God had ordained for it. God has created and mastered and assessed his creation and in each role he has done these things perfectly. And that assessment, and it was good, should be an amazing thing from our perspective. Because when we look around at creation, what is there in this creation that feels or is totally good? The answer, of course, is none of it does. None of creation is totally and perfectly good. That's why Paul says in Romans 8 that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth because creation itself was subjected to futility at the curse that came with sin. Not going to steal from our time in Genesis 3, but... For the sake of our message, I want us to try to imagine, knowing how incredible the creation that we live in now seems to us, what it must have been like to live in a creation that God himself would step back and assess and call it good. We go to the mountains, we go to the ocean, we go to see a sunset, we see the northern lights outside, and man, do they seem good. And yet that is a creation subjected to a curse and a fall and a futility that affects everything. Most importantly, it affects our ability to interact with that creation. But imagine what it would have been like to see a creation that was good. and How much even better that would have been. And while we're thinking about that, I want us to realize that something far greater awaits those who would trust in the one called the Word of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. We absolutely love to see these incredible creations of God. We are just left in awe. And yet something infinitely greater is awaiting those who would trust in their Lord Jesus Christ. When we talk about salvation, and this is something I want us to leave here with today, thinking about this creation narrative, it would be easy for us to be like, okay, we can leave here. Genesis 1, God created everything. 
if creation's good, but if we leave not aware of who our God is in light of the creation, we've missed the point. This is God's story after all. Our God is infinitely powerful, infinitely creative, infinitely good. And this is the very God that we worship. We're here on Thanksgiving Sunday, and we know that the thing that we have most to give thanks for is for our God and for what He has done. And He, by His power, has created the world, has created us, has reconciled us to Himself by His Son, Jesus Christ, when we have rejected Him. And He has the power to do so. He has the power not only to save us, but to keep us and to keep us unto the end. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Why do we look at Genesis 1, 2 to 25? Why does it matter that God created the world the way that it is? Because it is displayed that our God is infinitely powerful. He is capable of creating with just a word, and he is capable of making things good. And he has created in us, in those who have trusted in him, a new heart, a heart that would love him and follow him. He has created a newness of life. And in that newness of life, we can have hope. We can trust that we are saved. And that salvation is not of our own making or doing. It is his making, his doing, just as creation was right at the very beginning. God has created the universe and he has created in us a new heart. As we draw things to a close here this Thanksgiving Sunday, leave here knowing that the very same God who created the universe holds and cares for each lamb of his flock, each one of his people. We are told that he would leave even the 99 to rescue the one. And if we have confessed Christ as our Lord and Savior, then we are one of his sheep. Revel in the glory and the majesty. Be encouraged by the glory and the majesty of your God. As you go into your Thanksgiving Sunday, we talked earlier about how in the Bible study on Wednesday night, we talked about living life to God's glory and how even the mundane things become glorious if we acknowledge God's fingerprints upon all things in creation. As you go and eat insane amounts of food, likely, in the next hours or days, 
as you go and spend time with friends and family, as you make it home safely, as you step outside into the sunshine, as you feel that it's still warm outside and not snowing quite yet, God has created all of these things. That is your God. He has done this, and he has done it for his glory. And by God's grace, by his incredible love for us, what is glorifying to him also happens to be incredibly good for us. So glorify him. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, you are the one who has created all things that anything that we love, anything that we see in this universe that has value, that you have created it, you have made it, you have orchestrated all of eternity that in that moment things would be as they are. Our Lord, you are the antecedent to all creation because you exist this is. So Lord, may we give you thanks. And Lord, we acknowledge that not all of us are in situations that we would deem as good. Not all of us are experiencing joy and life and happiness and hope the way that we maybe feel like we should. Not all of us even know you there are those who are hearing this who do not yet know your Son Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And yet, Lord, you are still good. And yet, Lord, you are still working. Working in us to will and to work according to your good pleasure. And Lord, for those who do not know yet know you, open their eyes by your Holy Spirit. Work upon their hearts that they would finally see that all of creation exists to glorify you and you alone. All creation exists only because of you and you alone. And for those of us who are hurting, who are in the midst of trial and struggle and pain, Would you help us to see what you have done? Would you help us to see your goodness even in the face of our trials? And even if we don't see it, help us to trust that this is so. Help us to trust that you are still the God who created the universe and you had created it good. Lord, may we be a people that react to our universe with thanksgiving to the God who has created all things. The one God. Lord, take us from here. In your will, O oh Lord, return us safely next week. May our conversations around our Thanksgiving supper tables glorify you and be in thanksgiving of you. Go with us this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.